Let's now turn to the Gospel of Matthew, and we'll read from chapter 5. Matthew 5, we'll begin at verse 27 and continue through verse 32. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. In connection with our scripture reading, we also turn in our book of forms and prayers to Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 41. What is God's will for us in the seventh commandment? That God condemns all unchastity, and that we should therefore detest it wholeheartedly and live decent and chaste lives, within or outside of the holy state of marriage. Does God in this commandment forbid only such scandalous sins as adultery? We are temples of the Holy Spirit, body and soul, and God wants both to be kept clean and holy. That is why God forbids all unchaste actions, looks, talk, thoughts, or desires, and whatever may incite someone to them. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, our world is uh, very similar to the world of uh, the Christians to whom Paul writes in the book of Thessalonians. Uh, Thessalonica, uh, a major port city in the Roman Empire, uh, was in the midst of a, of a culture that that was renowned for its permissiveness, a culture where every form of sexual vice was was rampant. But the gospel had come to these people with power. It had freed them from from the the bondage and guilt and condemnation of sin. They had turned from idols uh, to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven. But learning to live, uh, learning to walk so as to please God is an ongoing process of those who have been uh, forgiven, those who have been delivered from the dominion of sin. That doesn't mean that they've been delivered from the presence of sin. It doesn't mean that they've been delivered from warfare and conflict against sin. It's an ongoing process. We heard that uh, in a couple different ways in this uh, scripture reading. We heard those repeated words, more and more, more and more. Twice we heard such language, and that's really a description of the, the Christian life of sanctification. Uh, we, we increase in the knowledge and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ by the work of His Spirit so that we make progress in this walk learning more and more to conform to the will of God. Paul zeroes in 
in this chapter that we read to one crucial area that is often, I perhaps even could say, always a battleground against temptation and against sin. In verse 3, he says, This is the will of God, your sanctification. Now, sanctification indeed is a very broad term that covers the whole spectrum of what it means to grow in uh, in faith and in obedience to the Lord. But then he gets specific, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. He zeroes in on one critical area in which this sanctification is to be uh, practiced and manifested. We might say that is what the seventh commandment is all about. You could even say that uh, this is a form in which the seventh commandment is essentially repeated in the New Testament. This is the will of God, your sanctification, particularly among nine other commandments, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Now that's uh, an explicit reference to the sin of breaking the marriage bond, but like all the commandments, it goes to the heart of a matter that involves a very broad spectrum of, of, uh, of importance for the Christian life. God has called us to live decent and chaste lives. I'm quoting the language of this Lord's Day. Chaste lives. Now, it's clear that in this context, decency and chastity refers to sexual uh, decency and chastity. It's like the word purity. The word purity has a broad meaning. Blessed are the pure in heart, and purity refers to our likeness to God in holiness and sanctification. But often, often it's used even in Scripture with a particular reference to sexual purity. It's a word that is contrasted with other words associated with cleanness or uncleanness. In Ephesians chapter uh, 5, we are warned against uncleanness or filthiness. And there, the warning, of course, is not about wearing dirty clothes or having a dirty face, but in the context, it's clearly with reference to, to sexual purity. And that's how we understand this calling. God has called us to live decently and chastely. That is in sexual purity. And we're looking at three ways in which we are to understand this calling. First of all, with respect to your holy calling. We're using that word that uh, we heard this morning. A word that's repeated also in, in verse 7 where it says, God did not call us to uncleanness but in holiness. We are to walk worthy of the calling with which we have been called. In the first chapter of Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, he uses this language uh, also. In verse 11 and 12 of chapter 1, he says, As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his holy kingdom and glory. Every Christian has been effectually called by grace. This is that work of the Holy Spirit through the gospel, making that message uh, reach the heart and producing a response of repentance and faith. You are a chosen generation, Peter says in 1 Peter 2 a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, 
They have a special vocation, a calling as God's people separated from the world that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Every believer shares this same calling. It is a calling that is common to all true Christians. It is a common calling to all who are united to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's important that we understand that this is the context tonight in which we hear God's command to purity. You see, without this, the law only condemns. In other words, we might say, uh, this is not a sermon about how to become a Christian, as if to suggest, if you want to become a Christian, well, then you must live a chaste and decent life. And then you get to go to heaven. Now, it may be that this is the kind of sermon that that should convict some that they really need to become Christians. But then the way to become Christians is not to resolve that from henceforth you'll live in sexual purity. The way to become Christians is to confess your inability to do that. It's to confess your guilt before God and to repent of your sins and call upon the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of sins and for the gift of His Holy Spirit and for new life. Because only as Christians can we heed this calling and make any progress in the way of true sanctification in this area. Every Christian shares this common calling of God's grace. And it's in that context that we hear this summons to live the Christian life in this area. But the Bible also speaks of individual callings. The Bible speaks of uh, what we might also refer to as our vocation or our, our station in life, the circumstances in which we are uh, called to, to serve the Lord. The Catechism also uses such uh, language in answer 124 in terms of the third petition, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It means help everyone carry out his office and calling as willingly and faithfully as the angels in heaven. In other words, carry out his Christian life in the context of his circumstances, his relationships that define his specific calling, the way he serves the Lord. And there's a, a, a multiple um, way in which the, the Bible uses calling with res- this in this respect. For example, in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 7, Verse 17, we read, As God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. And so I ordain in all the churches. When it was anyone called while circumcised, let him not become uncircumcised. Was anyone called while uncircumcised, let him not become circumcised. Let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Do not be concerned about it, but if you can be made free, rather use it. For he who is called in the Lord, while a slave, is the Lord's freeman. So there is this calling unto salvation, but it's in the context of one's life circumstances in which they are to serve the Lord. And our catechism speaks of of two broad categories in which we are to live decent and chaste lives. First, to those who are married. 
We are to live decent and chaste lives within, that's the language of our catechism, within or outside of the holy state of marriage. The holy state of marriage. Important language here, actually. I looked at the form for marriage, form number one, and I found that these words, the holy state of marriage, is found three separate times. And there are two other occasions where marriage is referred to as the holy bond of marriage. Now, uh, there's no verse in the Bible that describes marriage explicitly in this language. Holy state, holy bonds. But it's biblical language that describes the uniqueness and the specialness of marriage as God designed it, as God instituted it, as God blesses it, as God protects it. In fact, sometimes the, the, the commandments have been defined in terms of holiness. Like the sixth commandment, the sanctity of life. There's a sacredness to life as God has created it that must be protected and guarded. The seventh commandment, the sanctity of marriage. It is to be protected. It is to be treated as special. Now that demands a very clear understanding of what marriage is, doesn't it? And we have to be clear that the state has no right and actually the state has no ability to define marriage as it chooses. And we must utterly refuse to go along with the lies of our current culture that pretends that a so-called union of a man and a man is a marriage. It is not a marriage. There is no such thing in the world as a man who has a husband. There is no such thing in the world as a woman who has a wife. And our society can lie about it all they want, and they can use that language, but using the language doesn't create a reality that's impossible, that cannot exist. And we ought not to play along with a lie. If that were the case, then we'd have to take Hebrews 13, verse 4, which says, marriage is honorable among all. Say, oh, the state defines marriage, therefore, whatever the state calls, marriage is to be respected and honored as a marriage. Well, the Bible assumes that marriage is a, is a definite thing as God has established it, as God defined it from the very beginning. Now, there's a difference between an unlawful marriage and something that isn't a marriage at all. A marriage could be entered into unlawfully in the sense that it is contrary to God's will as revealed in Scripture. But someone cannot marry their cat. Someone cannot marry a, another man as a man. And calling it marriage doesn't make it so. It's not a marriage. God defines marriage. Marriage is honorable among all, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. There are these clear and simple categories that the Scripture gives with respect to such things. Adultery is a violation of an actual marriage. There is a holy state of marriage in which we are to live decent and chaste lives. And then there is singleness. And there are variations among those who are single. There are those who are unmarried in general, those who are 
not yet married or no longer married because of death or divorce. But these are rather simple categories that were given in our catechism. Those who are to live chaste and decent lives within or outside of the holy state of marriage. And that just covers everyone, married or not. So-called same-sex unions or so-called common law unions, they're not recognized in Scripture. There is no blessing for such so-called unions or so-called marriages. You know that the Anglican Church, in a recent ruling, I believe in the last few weeks, has now authorized its priests to bless same-sex unions. They don't quite dare to go all the way and call them marriages for purely political, pragmatic, humanistic reasons. That's confusing to anyone who would read about their rationale for these distinctions. But they want to bless same-sex unions. Well, people can speak words of blessing, but they don't impart blessing just because they're words spoken with good intent to somehow make something appear to be sacred or significant. Without God's word behind it, there is no real blessing. God doesn't bless such so-called unions. It doesn't say fornicators and adulterers God will bless. It says fornicators and adulterers God will judge. God blesses those who walk in the law of the Lord. And for those who are single, unmarried, divorced, or widowed, God blesses them as they serve God in the context of their calling and as they live holy lives. Yes, we must not think while marriage is, is holy and singleness is somehow inferior in the sense that one cannot serve and glorify God in that state. In fact, actually the Bible specials, uh, singles out a special kind of sanctification that characterizes the unmarried. In 1 Corinthians 7, the unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. Now, that doesn't mean that a married woman cannot be holy in body and spirit, but it means that there's a kind of direct relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and a consecration to Him that characterizes singleness that doesn't involve the additional responsibilities and calling to care for one's husband. That's the distinction that the Bible makes. It's not a distinction of holiness or not, but different forms in which that holiness is actually actually lived out in these different relationships or situations. We are to live decent and chaste lives with purity in our holy calling, whatever that may be at this point, whether married or no longer married or not yet married or perhaps single as a way of life and service of the Lord to which he has called us. in in which he will equip us. Also, if that means fighting temptation and sin, even if that means suffering loneliness and unfulfilled longings in some respect, that is sometimes the context in which Christians are called to carry the cross of Jesus Christ in fellowship with him. His grace is sufficient, and they may be sure of that.
We're to live decent and chaste lives in our, our callings. We're to live decent and chaste lives with purity of body and soul. God wants both to be kept clean and holy. We must use our, use our bodies in sanctification and honor. That's the language of verse 4 of First uh, Thessalonians 4. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. And uh, that you might have a marginal reading. There are different interpretations on this. There are those who would see this as a reference to one's wife as a vessel, right? And that's not foreign to the language of Scripture. In First Peter, husbands are called to dwell with their wives with understanding as with a weaker vessel. But I believe that the context here requires us to see the word vessel to refer to our bodies themselves, which is also uh, scriptural language. The context favors that, that understanding, which involves a, a broader kind of address and application to this matter of sexual purity. It's not simply addressed to husbands with wives, but it's addressed to all of us with bodies. And we're to use our bodies in sanctification and honor in a way that is suitable before God and others. Our catechism fleshes this out and it says that God forbids all unchaste actions and looks and talk. And of course, I could, I could go on with a very long list, uh, in, in, uh, explaining what those kinds of things involve. And, uh, there certainly is a place for that. There's a place for direct, uh, exhortation and conversation of parents and their, their, uh, Young people in the catechism class or among young people, I uh, get more specific on occasion. But for now, let's say that of first importance in the way we hear and uh, would seek to live out this teaching, of first importance is the fear of God. Remember Joseph when he was solicited by Potiphar's wife to engage in immorality? He says, how can I sin against God? He lived with a conscience that was subject to God's presence and God's will. And that's really at the heart of the matter, isn't it? We must guard our inner lives, first of all. We must realize that that uh, outward actions proceed from the heart. As the Lord Jesus said in Mark chapter 7, What comes out of a man, that defiles a man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a man. And we're taught by our Lord Jesus that that defilement takes place even when they do not result in outward conduct and action. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, not in passion of lust, not giving in to those sinful desires that arise so easily and naturally to us in our our fallen condition. 
not in passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God. We must then also guard against that which incites or stirs up sinful thoughts and desires. Stay away from people, stay away from places or websites or movies that would draw you into sin. It's interesting, isn't it, that Jesus, it's immediately after uh, addressing this matter of the lusts of our hearts and the fact that we could commit adultery even in our hearts, that he goes on to speak of the drastic measures that sometimes may be necessary in order to address sin. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. If your right hand causes you to sin, now that's figurative language, of course. But it means that we must be intentional and we must uh, be determined in our battle against sin. And if that means that we've got to avoid certain things or places, take drastic action, well, far better for us to suffer loss than to suffer God's judgment. God wants us to respect the true dignity of our lives. I place that in connection with his call to purity of body and soul. God wants us to respect the true dignity of our lives. You know, dignity, it's another one of those words that's bandied about today. And it's a word that's used in the service of a godless view of what it means to be human. It basically goes like this. I define myself on my terms, and you better accept it fully, without criticism, without even some secret disapproval in your hearts over my choices. Because if you don't, you are assaulting my dignity. You're canceling me. You're treating me as if I'm not worthy of existence. You're obliterating my identity because I choose my identity and my dignity is wrapped up in my self-definition. Brothers and sisters, that is a desperate and sad and pathetic way of thinking about dignity. It's desperate from people who, who do not know God. And a result of that, they do not know themselves. They're lost. They're grasping at some form of significance, but they're trying to define it in rebellion against God and rebellion against reality as if they can create their own reality and everybody has to go along with it and respect it. And we need to love people enough to say, no, no, your dignity is not something that you define for yourself however you wish. Your dignity is found in recognizing who you are as God created you in His image. If you're to respect that dignity, that means you must recognize the sinfulness of fighting against God's good and holy will. Dignity today is really a kind of self-centered hypersensitivity. True dignity doesn't come from any greatness that we have or we define for ourselves. True dignity comes from God's condescending gifts and care for us who made us, who made us body and soul, who made us with the bodies that we possess in common as reflecting God's image, as we possess individually according to his own purpose, according to his formation of our bodies with all their unique features and characteristics of looks and size and shape, and he gives us real purpose as he reveals the way to live in sanctification and honor through grace. 
And we're to respect that with gratitude. We are to guard the property of Jesus. Our bodies are the property of Jesus. And we're to respect them for his sake. And that is truly possessing our bodies with sanctity, with honor. We're to do so as those indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Our view of purity must be God-centered. You know, we hear that throughout uh, the language of this Lord's Day. The, the question is, what is God's will for us? And God is repeatedly the, the, the subject here. God commands all iniquity. God in this commandment forbids unchaste action. God wants us to be chaste, to be kept clean and holy. And what that means then is that we are to care what God wants. We are to share God's attitude towards uncleanness. God detests uncleanness. And we want to share that attitude of God. And we want what he wants. This is the will of God, Paul says. Our passage also reflects that emphasis upon God. It's God-centered in its teaching. This is the will of God, your sanctification. Not like the Gentiles who do not know God. Yes, sexual sin harms others. Verse 6 uh, speaks of that when it warns against defrauding a brother or taking advantage of a brother in this matter. But the reason is the Lord is the avenger of all such. And God has not called us to uncleanness, but in holiness. And this is not human opinion or Paul's ethics that he's sharing. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God who has also given us his Holy Spirit. This is the word of God, and that must shape and define our understanding. Actually, it's in verse 8 or verse 7 that we have the crowning reason or the crowning argument for such purity. And it's a, a reason that is grounded in God's grace. God who has also given us his Holy Spirit. Elsewhere in Paul's epistles, we have uh, the indwelling spirit presented to us as a great Christian motivation to abstain from sexual immorality. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. The true uh, Christian body image, the way we the way we feel about our bodies, right? You look up that term body image and it describes how people feel about their bodies. Well, the true uh, Christian body image doesn't begin with our feelings and our judgments by based on what we see and how we compare with others. But the true body image is based upon what God says about our bodies. It's created in his image. And the true Christian body image is that you are temples of the living God. I said earlier, respect the true dignity of your lives. And that includes your bodies. Paul says that uh, sexual immorality is a sin committed against our own body. 
Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. But along with respecting the dignity of your own lives, respect the divine dignity of the holy guests who dwells within you. And believe in that grace of the Lord Jesus Christ who achieved such redemption of your entire humanity. He purchased you, body and soul, by his precious blood. And believe in the power of that grace that works within you. Believe in the more and more power of that grace as you struggle with sin and temptation. You may sometimes fall and feel shame and guilt. Persevere and clinging to the promise of God's forgiveness and sanctifying power through the work of his Holy Spirit, so that more and more we might learn to live decent and chaste lives in our own particular calling by his grace. Amen.